Okay, this is reel one of the May 31st, 1994 interview of Robert McCormick Adams in his office in the Smithsonian Building, and the interviewer is Pamela Henson for the Smithsonian Archives Oral History Program. And what I wanted to pick up uh, with today is um, your tenures uh, as director of the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Um, talk a little bit about what it was like when you got there and what your program was for it in a variety of ways, facilities, research, staffing, et cetera. Uh, so when you assumed the director, or when you were preparing to assume the directorship, uh, what was its state at that point? Well, let me go back a bit before sure. that. Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago had been the original locus of the Manhattan Project and, uh, and was impacted by that, by that war work in a yeah. substantial way. And, and then, perhaps like most of the major universities, was uh, the recipient of a large flow of returning veterans. and. Uh, the American Veterans Committee was then a, a liberal, very active veterans organization, and I was active in that. Uh, and that sense of, of involvement in the world was strong for a relatively few years. Uh, I, my impression is having Having gone away from the campus in the in the spring of 1949, and then returning in the fall of of 51, and not having spent much time on the campus at all in between, that when I came back, it had become very much a traditional academic campus again. Uh, that was moving into the McCarthy period, and there were. There, there were a lot of quiet ramifications of that. Loyalty uh, oaths. Affecting uh, some scholars in, in my own department of anthropology. A, mm -hmm. a, a man named Robert Armstrong lost his job over that. Uh, not directly over that. There was enough due process that it didn't appear quite that openly, but but that was essentially it. There were other issues involved. Uh, Chicago, on the whole, handled that better than, than most universities, I think. But there was no doubt that the pressures were, were very heavy. Uh, the Oriental Institute was really an, a serene island in terms of those pressures. Yeah. Uh, the great majority of its of its faculty were uh, were foreign. Uh, I don't know. I can't say that they had come as as refugees because many had come yeah. already before the war. But but that intellectual the, 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 migration. Yeah, occurred, they were yeah. part of the European intellectual migration yeah. of the of the 30s and then the, and then the wartime years, and. One would have to go through and count them up, but but my guess is that in the in the middle to late fifties, that would have applied to three quarters of the 
on the staff of the Oriental Institute. Uh, it was not a serene island in any other way, except that it was not part of, of the, the larger American academic scene. It was a place with very strong personalities, with strong rivalries, with uh, uh, one might almost say fierce views uh, of what they thought was good and proper and of what they disliked in their in their colleagues and uh, uh, now that I think about it, I think there there had been at least one one Nazi on the on the uh, mm. faculty during the war he was gone by the time I got there but mm. I mean that's merely to say that it was not all a uh, an anti-fascist uh, uh, stream of refugees it was right. a, a European stream um, What were the primary currents? It's very hard to distinguish them in, in any simple terms. The, the people who had come were part of a, an exceedingly well-trained tradition in philological terms, okay. um, who also had been, had had mature historical and, and philosophical training and they were prepared to speak in, in very broad ways about the civilizations of the ancient Near East. Uh, some of them were specialists in the narrow sense, but the eminent people were all eminent at least in part for their breadth. Mm -hmm. And that's a quality which has which is much harder to find today. I have I've had occasion to remark in print on, on the sort of retreat into specialization that's gone on since. Um, I think of people like Gustav von Grunebaum, uh, who was at Chicago until sometime in the 60s. He then went out to start the, what became the von Grunebaum Center at UCLA uh, his book on medieval Islam was one of the, the great classic syntheses of that mm -hmm. subject. Um, Torkel Jakobsen, who I have already commented on, uh, was one of the great Sumerologists of our time or any time. And he was a Dane who had come to Chicago I think around 1930, and had worked in the field on Oriental Institute expeditions so that he was also reasonably conversant with an older style of archaeology. But he wrote a whole series of major works on uh, Sumerian society and religion and so on, uh, synthetic works of a scope that people don't do or certainly don't do as well now with, yeah. with some exceptions but in general I think you can say that. Uh, there was a titanic struggle that I found myself in the middle of between Jakobsen on the one hand and A. Leo Oppenheim who 
was another, this was a German Jewish refugee who became the head of the, of the uh, Assyrian Dictionary. And uh, the Assyrian Dictionary had begun in Chicago in the 1920s. And between then and 1950, had not produced a single volume. Now it was an immense task yeah. to convert the material yeah. from hundreds of thousands of texts into, into passages that could then be in some way coded and collected and right. collated and what have you. But even so, that was a, uh, it was not designed to go anywhere. Right. Uh, it was a project that allowed people to justify an interest in words rather than to produce a dictionary. Uh, Leo Oppenheim, while he was a Hegelian in terms of his point of view, mm -hmm. was also fiercely determined to make the ancient Near East live for a new generation of American students who would need a dictionary if, if it was ever to become a uh, a well-taught and well-studied yeah. uh, body of achievement. And, uh, and to go from, from an interest in words to a practical dictionary requires making many compromises, which Oppenheim was willing to make, many mistakes, which he also made. Uh, and one of the things that I found myself called upon to do in coming into the, uh, as director of the Oriental Institute, was to make a decision between Jakobsen, who, who had a vision, as he once put it, of a, of a perfect Greek statue, which may have no arms and legs, um, but is perfect, mm -hmm. uh, as compared with a Roman statue that, uh, maybe intact, but of lesser yep. quality. And uh, Leo was prepared to put out the dictionary. And yep. for as long as he lived, it was coming out at a great rate. It's, it's about 80% out now. Uh, and it's, it's again in the doldrums. Uh, mm. The woman who has now been the editor in charge since Leo's death, Erica Reiner, uh, is Hungarian by birth. Uh, she was another one of the of the European diaspora who came. Uh, I hope she finishes it in her lifetime. Yeah. But the outcome of that particular struggle was that Jakobsen, having lost, went off to Harvard. Mm. And uh, but by any reckoning, both Jakobsen and, and Oppenheim were astonishingly splendid scholars. They yeah. truly were. Uh, well, one can go on beyond that. John Wilson, who had been, he was an American, who had been the director of the Oriental Institute at an earlier time, came from a missionary background and had taught at, I think his initial teaching job had been at the American University of Beirut mm -hmm. in the early 1920s. And John was the only example in the senior, and he was maybe the only American in the senior group there, who came away from World War II with a sense that something new was needed in terms of a, 
what was then called area studies. That was a focus of concern right. that, the, that the Ford Foundation had introduced and was putting some money into. And, and uh, John was trying to build a broad coalition of humanities and social sciences behind something that was integrated across time and went from the ancient past up to the present. And he did not get much resonance out of his colleagues in the, in the uh, Oriental Institute. Uh, there was a, apart from, from John, who was an Egyptologist, there, were, there was quite a large number of, of other Egyptologists who, on the whole, were not comparable, in my own judgment, to the Assyriologists in their, in their quality. I'm skipping over a lot of people who yeah. also had, uh, had very important qualities who came then. Uh, I.J. Gelb, who became an important student of, of the ancient Near Eastern economy. Mm -hmm. uh, Miguel Seville, a Spanish former Jesuit, who in linguistic terms was a great, he is a great scholar. The problem is that the older generation, Hans Guterbach, whom I think I've already right. mentioned in the Hittite field, uh, the problem is that as the older generation moved into retirement or moved away, uh, they left people who, who were very able but who were less inclined to try to speak to the world about what they were doing and uh, who were much more sensitive to the to the criticisms of their colleagues that forced them into narrower and narrower specializations. Yeah. And I think that was a development that was very hard to fight, but mm -hmm. it was maybe it was inevitable. It was going on throughout the humanities. Uh, our money in those days came primarily from the university. The Oriental Institute had uh, an initial endowment from Rockefeller himself, John D. Uh, and in the late 50s, the director of the Oriental Institute had been a man named Carl Kraling. And, uh, Carl was brought in as an outsider, and I learned a lot about administration from Carl because he was, he was a tough-minded administrator in, in a place that didn't welcome him and that and he nevertheless did very well in. Yeah. And uh, I think he came from Yale. He'd been part of the Dura Europus excavations in Syria in the 1930s. Uh, and I became an assistant to, to Carl. Okay. Uh, in fact, I think he and I co-edited a book in the late 50s. Uh, and I was, therefore, getting an introduction to yeah. administration under Carl. It frankly never occurred to me that I'd be involved mm -hmm. as the director, but, but that was happening. And in fact, I cannot now recall how in the hell I did become director. I mean, I... It just happened. Yeah. Uh, well, was it in any way because you were not locked into these conflicts? It's conceivable. It, it, it is, con but, but I don't, I mean, it's really yeah, hard to say. say yeah. uh, there was a sense, look, uh, Carl, 
Carl became ill. I think he had heart trouble. And I think, therefore, his stepping down was not planned, but yeah. became necessary. But before he stepped down, he uh, had secured another major grant from, mm. from Rockefeller. Now it was John D. Jr. Yeah. Uh, the old man was gone. And, and there was a prospect of more f interesting fieldwork. Yeah. And I had opened up one interesting line with archaeological surveys that I was doing. And that was certainly part of what they looked ahead and saw themselves doing. Okay. Bob Braidwood, under whom I had first gone right. to the field, was continuing with his work on early villages and the beginnings of agriculture. And that had been an exceedingly promising line that, in effect, created a field, yeah. mostly among anthropologists. Yeah. Uh, and if you were to talk to someone like Bruce Smith here, uh, Bruce would say that that was sort of historically decisive, what Bob was doing at the time. And in fact, I recall sitting in Bob Braidwood's office in 52 or 3, where I had a desk, and, and uh, the representative came in from the National Science Foundation, which had excluded the social sciences when it was first set up, yeah. and was interested in finding a way of getting beyond that exclusion and had chosen precisely work on the beginnings of agriculture because it involved syntheses of scientific material and ar archaeological excavations and social yeah. theories and whatever. And, and I think the first project they funded was, was Braidwood's project. So that it was, yeah. it was a very important thing in its own way. And, and clearly that was going to go on, and that was another major theme. So there was very interesting work of that kind. Uh, something that looked promising but turned out to be less so was the building of the high dam in, at Aswan on the Nile. Uh, the Oriental Institute had a substantial piece of the action but it fell into the hands of a man named Keith Seeley, who was trained as a philologist and who had a very limited view of either what archaeology could do or of any of the broader interpretive questions that ought to come out of, of excavating up in that area. And the result was that we, we excavated thousands upon thousands of pots and put them in the museum and fair yeah. amounts of perishable material like like cloth and what have you uh, but made very little contribution to the yeah. kinds of questions which are now dominant like the relations between Africa and Egypt for example yeah. uh, what else was current at the time in the way of projects Excavations were going on at the uh, Sumerian city of Nippur. They're still going on there whenever anybody can get into Iraq. Yeah. Uh, that project had begun under Pennsylvania back in the 1890s oh, and was taken up by Chicago 
at the end of the 1940s and has continued ever since. And as, as the Sumerian religious city, it was an important focus of work and there were very interesting results coming up. So we were clearly active yeah. in that field as well. So the 60s were a time with interesting field work going on, with uh, significant progress on things like the Assyrian Dictionary, with a series of, of powerful monographs still appearing. Yeah. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah, there'd yeah. always been a strong publication program. Always. Out of it the has, Institute oh yeah, itself, it has a huge right? Yeah. Series of, of uh, OIPs, Oriental Institute publications, and yeah. and SAOC studies in ancient Oriental civilization. It's it's always had a big a big yeah. program. Uh, the later volumes are less philosophical, less synthetic, more detailed, yeah. but uh, it's a it's a program of very high technical standards. Right. Uh, it seems unusual in the sense of having an organization that can provide the field money, the curatorial support, the publication support. Well, it's scholars. a tradition which yeah. you could say it goes with, with uh, the sciences in part. Yeah. The, the image of the Oriental Institute was to be, to be a scientific institute but in yeah. the humanities yeah. and uh, more like the Institute for Advanced Study or, yeah. or uh, what would be some other examples. Well, there were institutes at Chicago that were functioning at the same time. The, the, the James Franck Institute, the Enrico Fermi Institute, yeah. over in, the, in, in physics and physical yeah. chemistry and so on. So it existed then. Yeah. Uh, the federal sources of support were still, they were coming up, but they weren't up to the present standards. Yeah. So that if you didn't have that kind of money, you didn't do yeah. field work. Yeah. And the, few institutions that did were the ones that had all the activity. Yeah. Uh, in those days it was it was really Chicago and Pennsylvania and not much else. Yeah. I mean, that's really the way it was. Yeah. And then it continued to spread out as yeah. as NSF and then the endowments came along. Yeah. But it was very limited at that time. Uh, now, had your colleagues accepted your more anthropological approach and your more uh, material culture and... Well, I wish I could uh, give you a correct answer. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, or did that... I think I was accepted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after all, I did yeah. repeatedly get put back in again. Right. But I was accepted in part because I, I was a piece of both and mm -hmm. was able to perform in that role yeah. and uh, uh, I'm, I, I would be hard put to say that they that I really moved them to become different on this score than they were before I got yeah. there it, yeah. uh, uh, we got along very well not merely amicably but yeah. But I think constructively. Yeah. But I'm not sure that, that that was a consequence of of any persuasive success yeah. on my part. I wondered if any linkages were being developed with other university departments. I think of in that period of time, urban studies becoming a field. Well, I was active in urban studies, and yeah. I okay. organized some urban studies meetings through the SSRC and so yeah. on. But you see, the, I had an appointment also in anthropology and. 
and I could move back and forth just by crossing the street. And, right. And they need not concern themselves with what I did on the other side of the street. Okay. So that there was no need to, for this to come together in some way. Okay. Um, now once you became director, were, were there personnel opportunities to, to move the staff in that direction? or? There really were not because the standards of the Institute, which were humanistic standards, right. were very high. And the social scientists who might someday conform to those standards weren't yet being produced. Yeah. Later on they came, mm -hmm. or they began to come. But uh, one would have had to go in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, we trained some of those who mm -hmm. certainly could have gone in that direction. But right. it's also the case that there, even now there haven't been very many. Yeah. And uh, some of those who, were, who I thought were most impressive and who should have been impressive on, on philological grounds as well, were not taken, and, mm -hmm. and I can only think that reflects in part an unreadiness to, to move in yeah. that direction. Yeah. So I convinced myself that these matters change very slowly over long periods of time. And it certainly didn't take place yeah. during, the, during the 60s while yeah. I was directing the Oriental Institute. Yeah. Now, were there loss of facilities with the turmoil in the, in the Middle East? How much of that took up your time as director in those years? Not, not really. Uh, obviously, there were moments of, of confusion and trouble. We had to shut down Chicago House, which was our main base in Luxor in Egypt, and it's a great research base there with the best library, best Egyptological library anywhere outside of a couple of countries of Western Europe, Europe yeah. and the United States. We had to shut that down during the, the Suez crisis for some time, maybe a year or two. Um, we got pushed out of Iraq by the Iraq revolution in 58 for yeah. maybe a year, year and a half. Um, what else suffered? Not during those, I mean, the, I think I mentioned last time that yeah. I periodically had trouble myself getting right. a permit to right. work. But no, the sense, the sense was still that the Israeli-Arab questions were going to be solved any day now. And uh, uh, yeah. people were optimistic. Uh, Iran was open. Uh, the Shah was in power. Uh, we began work. Also, I went out and found a, a marvelous site on one of my surveys in Iran, and and then, uh, then another Oriental Institute expedition took up work there. Uh, what site was that? Uh, Chogamish. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, there was a sense of, of so much to do and
Yeah. And new methods were coming forward yeah. all the time in the natural sciences. Uh, and, uh, and one had the sense of, of really an open horizon. And mm -hmm. if we could get more money, we could do anything. Yeah. And, uh, uh, little bits of money came in from various other places. I got some from the American Schools of Oriental Research. I don't remember at the moment where, where the grants were coming from, but, but they were small and most, mostly it was internally generated or yeah. coming in from friends of the Oriental Institute. Right. And the, the Institute did have a, a group of loyal friends around it there in Chicago. Uh, that pretty well takes us through, I think. Did you have any specific goals when you took over as director, uh, programs? Well, I think there were, there was this sense of, a, of an expansive horizon in every direction. Mm -hmm. what, what could we do? Yeah. And uh, you didn't really need to have goals because yeah. there was so much to do that if you could get the people, you could, you could, do, you could do wonderful things. Uh, Obviously, if I had goals, they would have been to generate more work in social and economic history, more work in, of an interdisciplinary character that brought in the sciences and the social sciences. Uh, and I don't mean to say there was none, but I, I can't say that, that it fundamentally changed the character of the place. Yeah. One of Ahead. Uh, one of the things you've worked on here very hard is, was um, a more diverse workforce. Was that something that... No, that you, really was not, to yeah. be honest with you. I think Before I was concerned, I know I was concerned about creating some positions for women. And, and I think I was indeed involved in bringing in uh, a very good woman Egyptologist who's still yeah. there. Uh, and, and a couple of others, but there were no diverse types to bring in in yeah. ancient oriental languages. Yeah. Uh, there still are very few. Yeah. And there weren't students coming from the Middle East, were, were there? Yes, there were, there, there were, were some. Uh, and some, in fact, uh, my colleagues and I brought back with us people who'd been assigned to yeah. work with us in the field as inspectors or whatever. Uh, so there was a continuing stream of, mm -hmm. of, of young Middle Eastern colleagues who came. Yeah. And there were visiting professors from Western Europe, but also from the Middle East, who came and were in residence for a time and, <coughs> and uh, uh, who made the place diverse in that sense. But uh, certainly in terms of the U.S. definitions of diversity, there was... Nobody then. Yeah, back in that. I wondered if the scholars there um, felt this similar type of stresses that scholars here do between trying to get field work done, curation, and I, I wondered who handled the curation and getting your writing done, public Not really. programming. No? Uh, it was an extraordinary place. There was just a tiny handful of people who who cared about curation at all. There was no sense hmm. of changing exhibitions. 
Okay, so the, there, there wasn't the, a pressure. The exhibitions yeah. were sort of standard demonstrations of what the, the Institute had done in, in some place or other. And uh, obviously new cases got built and things got put in them from time to time, but there were not more than two or three people who, who cared a damn about any of that. Mm -hmm. There were very few students. Basically, people were doing their own work. And, uh, and not worrying much about the actual curation. So, no. it was, so you didn't have those kind of stresses. Mm -hmm. Interesting. No, archaeologists who went to the field had a problem because right. they came back, back with, with all this stuff that right. they had to prepare for publication. Right. Okay, this is reel two of the May 31st interview of Robert McCormick Adams. So you were saying in order to get these large collections handled. Uh, well, that's always been a problem yeah. with excavations. Right. And uh, Graduate it's students. really still a problem, but certainly then it was the case that, that uh, there was never really a match between the number of personnel uh, whom universities could place in a <laughs> In their own department or, or uh, whatever, and the size of the staff needed to process the finds. So, yeah. so there was always a, a flow of volunteers mending pots and students incorporating them in dissertations in one way or the other. Uh, I don't mean to say there were no students. There were students in philology and history too, but the numbers were, were relatively small. Right. It was a, it was a wonderful place to work. Yeah. So. What um, you mentioned, you co-authored with the director. Mm -hmm. Would you do much um, discussion, interaction with the other scholars? Um, well, that was a book writing? that came out of a, a symposium. That. Uh, he and I both sort of ran. The book was called City Invincible. Mm, okay. and, uh, and it was on urban life. And uh, uh, and I, there really wasn't any other occasion like that. It's the kind of thing that Carl Kraling wanted to do when he came and hoped to do more of. and. Uh, and I would say it was a graft that didn't take. Mm -hmm. It was too, I don't mean quite to say too social science. It was, that may have been true too. But just at a time when specialization was becoming narrower, it tried to go in a broad direction. Yeah. It yeah. may have been five years too late. Yeah. Or too soon, as things are now moving yeah. sort of back in that direction again, as people need mm -hmm. the overviews to do mm -hmm. the more specialized work. Yeah, I'm trying to think what other people I should mention. Obviously, there were lots of others, with some of whom I worked very closely, but uh, I think I've touched on the major ones. And now you stepped down from that when you had the opportunity to get back in the field. Uh, is, is that correct? 
That was, so I have the date here. Wait a minute. Yes, I stepped down <coughs> in June of 68, having, right. completed, see, having completed six years. Right. And went off to Iraq again in the fall of 68. Right. And in fact, took the family out. Must have been an adventure for them. Well, they'd been out before once. Yeah. They'd been out in, in uh, 50. They were out in 57, 58 also, yeah. Create any long-standing interests in, in the... Not in the really. Yeah. Uh, the two older girls were placed in an Iraqi school in the year we were out there. Yeah. And, and I think loved it. Yeah. But I, it isn't that they continued in that area. Yeah. But, uh, but affects them in the sense of just that cultural exposure that... That may have made you. a difference. Yeah. Well, one of them is now a Buddhist and spends a lot of time in India and Tibet. Huh. The other one is a Balinese specialist. Huh. They don't work in the same areas, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but you could argue there's a connection. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So you went back out in the field, um, but then um, in 1970, after you'd come back from field work, accepted the position as Dean of the Social Science That's right. Faculty. And That's right. um, how did that come about? And why were you interested in doing that? What did that entail? Well, I don't know that I was, really. Yeah. I was uh, I was asked to do it, and I was, I would have been much more interested in going on in the field, but that, as I think yeah. I mentioned, Couldn't didn't look like it would be possible. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was interested in broad social science questions, yeah. which I could not pursue in the Oriental Institute, and this was a chance to to, uh, I mean, I, I really sort of went back and forth between anthropology and uh, Near Eastern studies, and and uh, with one yeah. seemingly closing down, it was a chance to, move to move in the other direction. And I'd been on and was still on a number of of, uh, of uh, social science research council. I think I was on the Middle East uh, Joint Committee at the time. I was on a number of boards that were involved from a social science perspective, it was a natural thing to do, to be yeah. honest. It yeah. was not, not so surprising. Yeah. Um, were there any more opportunities there for creating interdisciplinary um, interactions and bringing in broader staff? Well, that was, again, a good period in the social sciences. Yeah. Chicago may very well have been at the top of the heap yeah. in, in the social sciences in that period. and. Uh, there was not a, a need to, there was a need to maintain standards and to exercise good judgment. There was not a need to go charging up the hill in some new direction. Right. And, uh, and I think I was, uh, I think I was a very effective dean and I think I was admired as a dean in fact, but, but it was being a dean in a, again in a great institution in a, in a period when when money was plentiful and when uh, uh, the question was to spend it wisely. Yeah. But this, this was the period of time when there's a lot of turmoil on, on most campuses. There was a lot of turmoil. You're quite right. And did that affect uh, your school well, and sure. faculty? Well, sure. It, it did. And, and uh, we, had, we had our troubles with SDS and all the rest. I think Chicago, there was a, 
There were one or two sit-ins of one kind or another. Uh, but I don't, th I think Chicago behaved well, and I think, uh, and there were no major crises as a result of any of these. There, right. were, there were minor crises, but I think we basically worked our way through them in a pretty effective way. Yeah, yeah. Because when I think of the Chicago convention, you know, the 68 convention. Well, that was lively, that. I mean, yes, you, but, yeah. uh, and there were, there were certainly people who were, who were, uh, confronting the system and the Democratic Party and so on in, in 68 in Chicago yeah. and, and in fact uh, our whole family went down and were witnesses yeah. as the streets were getting torn up and so on but no yeah. it was not something that was traumatic or, it was not traumatic for the yeah. university in the yeah. same sense yeah some universities such as Cornell it was really just sort of tore Cornell the had place, a rough time tore the place apart uh, yeah. sometime in that period and I'm not altogether sure when uh, Dan Burston came from Chicago down to the Museum of American History here. Right, right. And that's right. Yeah. Dan was had his classes leafleted at Chicago. Uh, that this man was an informer, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I suppose it's quite likely, although I don't know this, that. Student hostility played a part in Dan's decision to come to Washington, uh, but that's the only case like that that yeah. I'm familiar with. Yeah. So at least a healthy response to mm -hmm. change in questioning. Well, Chicago was never. I mean, those were also the Vietnam years, yeah. of course, and. Uh, Unlike Cornell, which had a, a large Southeast Asian program, and, and that program was in the thick of a lot of quasi-military yeah. planning and activity, Chicago never got into any of that. Yeah. So that there was never the same sense of tension on the campus yeah, over those issues. Yeah. I'm sure there were members of faculties who who may even have been advisors to the government or something, yeah. but they were not doing so yeah. with the university as the instrumentality. Right. That may help to explain why, yeah, why it came through. Calmer. Um, and then you sort of moved back and forth a bit. Um, through 74 you were dean, and then went back out in the field again. That's right. Things quieted down. You went back out in the field uh, to finish the canal study in Iraq. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the next field work I did, I think, was 77. Saudi in, Arabia. Uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia. You're also named Harold H. Swift Distinguished Service Professor. Yeah, I don't remember when that happened, but it's in my CV, I guess. Yeah, that's 75. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that was um, uh, still maintaining the dual status then. Oh, I maintained it at all times I was there, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then returned to the deanship in 79 through 80. Well. I owed them a year because I'd, I'd left a year early in order to uh, okay. to catch up on that Iraqi possibility, yeah. and they didn't forget it. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, Bill Kruskal, who succeeded me, was offered a year at Oxford, and so I agreed to relieve him for a year, a year. in 79-80 in order to let him 
right. get the Oxford thing in. I think it was Oxford. Yeah. And okay. uh, so that was that was simply yeah. I mean, an informal debt, but a, right. a debt that I was happy to to repay in that yeah. form. And then, uh, and then I became dean, uh, director of the Oriental Institute, Oriental again, Institute again. Right. And I don't quite remember why that happened. Uh, I don't. In fact, I guess George Hughes had been the director, an Egyptologist, and I think he he hit retirement age. And my. Recollection may be wrong, but my guess is that they tried to find an, another and couldn't find anybody they were satisfied with, and and I agreed to take it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I expected to make a full term out of it because yeah. I was doing other things. And in fact, in I guess it was in the spring of '82, I went and taught at, at San Diego. And mm was really very interested in San Diego and was thinking of going there. Uh, I don't remember quite yeah. what was up in, in, uh, in the Oriental Institute. By that time, I, my feeling was that the Institute, but also the humanities, were, were in a retrograde condition, that, mm -hmm. that they were getting too defensive in orientation not that there weren't very good people, but, but they weren't doing work that was as broad or exciting as it had been. Yeah, yeah. And then in 82, you moved into the position of provost. That's right. So yeah. an even broader yeah. scale. How mm -hmm. did that come about, or what challenges well, did I that pose? Hannah Gray yeah. asked me. I, yeah. Uh, and by then, I was aware that it really wasn't likely that I would get back into the kind of field work that I yeah. was would have loved yeah. to resume, yeah. and uh, and I don't think I decided what to do next. That looked like a, a good way to sort of think about things. I suspect that that was about the time that I went on the Council of the National Academy of Sciences for the first time. Yeah, I think that's right. And. Yeah. Uh, and I was becoming very much involved in, in science policy questions mm -hmm. here in Washington. And there was a, a program in public policy that became a school presently at Chicago. And I also mm -hmm. had an appointment there. Uh -huh. So that, you could say, was in part compensating for the fact that what I had been doing looked like it was yeah. gradually attenuating. Yeah. What were the challenges of being provost? Uh, well, big complex institution yeah. with, by this time with resources becoming very short. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What do you do with the urgent demands of the physical sciences from one direction and the hospital and the biological sciences from another? Uh, probably greater intellectual strength in the social sciences, but with nothing comparable in the way of income from indirect costs and so on. It was, it was looking at large organizations and, and having a major hand in, in how they ran. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
I certainly didn't go into that with a great program. And so far as there was a program, mm -hmm. it would have been Hannah's. Yeah. But Hannah and I, I think, worked together very effectively. And Had you uh, known her very long? Yes, I think I had been dean for that first time in the early 1970s when, when I believe she first received tenure mm -hmm. as a young historian at Chicago. Yeah. She didn't stay. She then went off to Northwestern. But I, I think I was so you, the, yeah. the dean at that time. So I knew her way back, yeah. 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 But that doesn't mean we'd known each other well. We had not. Okay. So hadn't worked closely with we her had not on committees closely. or no. projects or things like no. that. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But just had known you as yeah. an administrator. Yeah, I and I was level. known to be somebody who had a lot of ties in the sciences. Yeah. Remember, my, in addition to everything else, my wife Ruth had been editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Sciences and right. had been uh, active in the physical sciences and to yeah. some extent the biological ones for all those years so that we were quite unusual, maybe almost unique in, in, in talking across the whole campus. Being able to speak to yeah. both w worlds. Yeah, to yeah. Uh, So undoubtedly yeah. that was a part of all that. And the interest in science policy yeah, or yeah. Re research policy probably yeah, yeah, is a better yeah. way to term yeah. it as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's what I wanted to cover today. Thank you.